I'm Professor Shane Greenstein, and you're listening to the Harvard Business School Digital Initiative Seminar, a premier seminar series that hosts thinkers and scholars who are pushing forward research on the digital transformation of the economy by conducting and connecting with cutting-edge leaders, equipping leaders, and building community, the digital initiative seeks not just to study, but also to shape digital transformation. To learn more, check out digital.hbs.edu. Okay, so it's a great pleasure to have Matt Backus with us, a paper with uh, Steve Tadellis and Tom Blake. And uh, as is our custom, we'll go around the room, everyone, uh, introduce themselves, so uh, Matt knows who's here, and let's start with uh, Chris. Uh, Chris Sandin, Entrepreneurial Management. Tony Moreno, Marketing Technology and Operations Management Unit. Alex McKay. David Yaffe, Strategy. Marcus Spies, Remain Unit. I'm Eric. Sorry. Eric Mankin, Organizational Behavior. Natalia Wright, PhD student in Strategy. Ariel Stern, Technology and Operations Management. Michael Ellis, Marketing Student. Tom Wambano, Marketing. I'm Eva Strauss, Marketing. In the back. Leading with the Digital Management. Grant, PhD Student in Business Life Economics. And I'm Christine Student in Kellogg. Oh, and two people watching. Uh, Diane Williams, uh, computer scientist, EdTech entrepreneur, alumna of Sloan and Harvard. And Shane Greenstein from the uh, technology operation. Okay. Is this, is this me? This is me. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so thank you, everybody, for being here. This is quite a, um, this is a fantastic group to get feedback on this. One thing I'll, I'll say since um, I know not everybody is, is an economist is I would love to get questions as I go. Uh, I assure you, you won't be being rude. Um, you know, I'm, I'm used to economists. So just like whatever's on your mind, like anything really. So this is a, a paper that's joined with Steve Tadellis. It it's comes out of an effort uh, between Steven Tadellis and uh, Neil Sundarisan to create a research labs at eBay, um, which ultimately dissolved. But while we were there, we got our hands on some data that let us ask what we thought were some pretty interesting questions. And so um, Steve was uh, one of the organizers of that group. And then Tom Blake was, at the time, a full-time economist at eBay. He's now moved to Amazon. And you know, Tom was uh, one, of the, one of the data people there that was a co-collaborator sort of almost instantly on all this, on all this marketing work. Um, Oh, uh, I think I have. Does the lock up something? It's working. Do I need to? Usually it's maybe? trigger. Trigger. Okay. We got. Okay. Um, so you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk sort of broadly up, up front about this research agenda, which is a few papers, um, and I'll introduce them in a second, but. You know, sort of by, by way of background, I wanted to think a little bit about economics and bargaining and negotiations as a literature. And I wanted to sort of pose this question, is bargaining a success story for economics? You know, economics is a field that's sort of used to a lot of success stories. You know, we got sociologists to take econometrics. Um, you know, we got political science to start uh, using game theoretic models. And so, you know, as a field, um, you know, we feel like we've been able to get our tools used by other people. And I'm not sure that this is true in the negotiations literature. Um, and I wanted to think about why for a second, because there is a big sort of theoretical literature, right, going all the way back to Nash. There's also a large experimental literature, 
And I think there's sort of two reasons. And I mean, to, to measure our success, right, you just have to look at sort of who's teaching negotiations and bargaining. And it's typically not economists, right? Uh, and Max and I were just talking about this before the talk. And I think, you know, there are a lot of reasons, right? One is that at the time when this turf, and this, is, this was Max's argument, right, that at the time when this turf was being created in the 80s, economists hadn't really figured out that behavioral economics was a serious thing yet. And we were still running around with our rational models, which looked nothing like the real world. Right, in our models, people don't talk. In reality, they do kind of flap their jaws when they negotiate, right? And so we didn't really have any way of explaining what was happening. I think there's a, a second story in here for why economics wasn't successful uh, at capturing much of this terrain, which is that you know, in bargaining, unlike an industrial organization or other areas, we weren't really disciplined by data because there wasn't a lot of data, right? It turns out to be incredibly hard to get data from real world bargaining and negotiations sort of in the field, right? And so I was very excited then uh, when I was at eBay and I discovered that a tremendous fraction of what happens on eBay happens uh, on something that looks very much like Rubenstein alternating sequential offers bargaining. I'm gonna tell you a lot about this platform, you know, but the idea of our agenda um, is to try to sort of reintroduce economics uh, in, in the negotiations and bargaining literature and to do so rather than from a sort of dogmatic perspective or to, to sort of impose these old sort of dated information, uh, information models, rather to sort of use the data and figure out what we can say um, in this area. So there's, there's three papers that I'm gonna talk about a little bit today. I always get a little bit confused by talks that are segmented, you know, one paper after another. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna talk mostly about this last paper in the series, uh, but, I'll, uh, but I'll, you know, have an aside, sort of an advertisement for the others as I go. Sort of broadly, the top one is the most complete. This one is accepted and sent out. Uh, the second one is still a little bit in progress. Uh, and the third one is, you know, as I like to say, being revised for my website. So not, not technically in any formal sense existing. Um, but it's on the way. And that's, that's what we'll talk about mostly today. So that's gonna be the narrative uh, for this particular presentation. So when I, when I start this talk, I always love to put up this quote from Vincent Crawford back in 1982. Uh, it says, bargaining broadly construed is, is pervasive. It's all over the place. He talks about labor negotiations and trade agreements. Today we might talk about climate change mitigation, right? Um, you know, you only need to consider these examples to realize that the potential welfare gains for improving the efficiency of bargaining are enormous, perhaps even greater than those that would result from a better understanding of macroeconomic policy. So with, within economics, uh, you know, if this isn't obviously sort of funny to you, we always have a little bit of envy that the macroeconomists get to ask the important questions, right? That, you know, we, we like to think of ourselves as microeconomists getting questions right, and macroeconomists are asking important questions. This is one case where at least one person is gonna tell me that what I'm doing is more important than macroeconomics. So I was thrilled. Um, what I wanna think about is, you know, the, the relationship between communication and bargaining. Um, and already you're going to see I'm sort of chipping away at this old role of economics where there really was no role in those formal theoretical models for communication and bargaining. Um, does the question matter? So I think there's two ways to think about this. The one is sort of the broad pitch, which is how should we design bargaining protocols, right? Should we, should we regulate communication when two parties are bargaining? And you could think about shuttle diplomacy and caucusing of negotiations as a way to uh, to regulate that communication, mediation and arbitration are another way to do that. And so thinking about the role of communication is important from the perspective of this broader sort of how do we design bargaining question. A little bit more narrowly though and closer to what I'll actually do in the paper 
is that I think it's immediately relevant for platforms that are going to host bargaining and negotiations. Uh, one of my favorite examples is Saatchi Art, where you can bargain directly with artists, right? Um, Amazon has actually, shortly after we started this research project, Amazon adopted a bargaining feature called Make an Offer, has a limited introduction. Uh, Taobao has lots of bargaining on the platform, right? There's an instant messenger service on Taobao, so you can bargain extensively. And on eBay, uh, about 10% of transaction volume, I'll show you, is happening by an alternating sequential offers mechanism. And one thing that's interesting here is that they're all facing this question of how much communication do we allow and how do we regulate it. And Amazon, which has the highest final value fee of these three, right? that's the fraction of the, of the transaction that they take as a platform. Amazon doesn't allow communication at all. Taobao, with the lowest final value fee, they do everything up front with a listing. They allow free-form communication. And eBay, which takes the intermediate final value fee between 8 and 12%, they allow some limited communication, right? So they see this, I think, you know, the first order consideration for these platforms has been preventing gray market transactions, people taking the transaction off the site. That's the risk. And so the question is, is there some benefit, right? Is this enabling transactions to happen that wouldn't otherwise? So I'll talk a little bit about the background on this question. Theory is, is sort of, in economics, is pretty conflicted about this. So, you know, tacit bargaining theory, here I'm thinking back to Nash and Rubenstein, it's silent on communication, there's no role, right? Um, now, one way to think about modeling communication uh, is to take whatever game you were using to model bargaining before and just add a cheat talk stage right before it, okay? So this would be the cheat talk modification to bargaining. And if you do that with a Crawford and Sabell style cheap talk model, then what you're going to get is that more communication can actually be bad. And this is a result that's due to my colleague at Columbia about her design. And the idea here is that you know, regulating communication is a form of pre-commitment. And in general, we can reach better equilibria if we introduce some pre-commitment mechanisms. If you take a mechanism design approach instead, so here I'm thinking of the Meyerson-Satterthwaite approach, where it's just free form. We're thinking about a bargaining mechanism. You report your value to the, to the mechanism, and it determines an outcome. What, what yep. does bad mean? Uh, bad as in, that's a, that's a great question. I should be more specific. So sort of how, uh, how efficient can an equilibrium be? So in general, there's going to be lots of equilibria, but sort of what's, what does the frontier look like? And it turns out in, in Bowder's paper, you can actually get better equilibria through pre-commitment strategies on communication by shutting it down. Um, so this, this was a paper about whether, whether when, you're, um, when you're organizing sort of a, a firm, do you want to talk to your managers or do you just want to delegate decisions to them? And he was showing that talk can be bad in this setting. Um, so in a, in, a, in a mechanism design approach, so this is the Meyerson-Satterthwaite approach where we think about general mechanisms, Farrell and, and, and uh, Bob Gibbons have, uh, Joe Farrell and Bob Gibbons have a nice paper that shows that you can have cheap talk matter in equilibrium <coughs> in the sense that it conveys useful information, but it doesn't change the upper bounds for bargaining efficiency, and so it's kind of irrelevant. Right? It's like you could construct these equilibria, but from a design perspective, it doesn't change how efficient the mechanism can be. And then if we start introducing behavioral elements, right, it seems like communication could be good. Right? So, you know, we, we don't get much guidance from the theory, and so we turn to experiments instead in economics. Um, outside of a bargaining setting, thinking about communication, how do we rationalize the importance of communication? Well, there's one very nice experimental result, which says if you take that, 
that Crawford and Sabell game. And that was a game, remember, where I'm biased. I'm communicating some information to you so you can make a decision, but I have preferences over what you do. Right, and in that game, there's an upper bound to how informative equilibria can be. What Kai and Wang showed in the laboratory is that people consistently outperform that upper bound. And they are doing it because they communicate too much, in some sense, to rationalize with, a, with rational agents and equilibrium. Okay? Now that might be because we're lie-averse, right? We're regret-averse in some sense, so we can introduce behavioral elements to try to rationalize that. And an alternative framework for thinking about why communication might matter is it might be there's lots of equilibria, right? And that communication is helping us select one through the pregame. Uh, so there's lots of reasons to think from the experimental literature that it might be useful. More specific to bargaining, um, you know, there, there have been experiments thinking about the introduction of communication. And I, I promised, I already told Max, I put this in every, every time I give this talk, not just here. But I, I like to pull these pictures out of, out, out of a paper um, that Max wrote some time ago that did an experiment in bargaining where they introduced sort of higher and higher bandwidth. Uh, in communication, so, so let me just explain what these pictures are. So this is a case where you have two-sided incomplete information. Seller doesn't know what it's worth to the buyer, buyer doesn't know what it's worth to the seller. Please stop me if I get it wrong. Um, so the 45 degree line is sort of the efficient frontier. You would always want them to trade if the buyer values it more than the seller. Okay, so that's the efficient upper bound, that's pretty straightforward. And they ran this experiment allowing people to bargain first with no communication. The black uh, diamonds here are where they successfully transacted, and the open squares are where they failed. And there's a couple things that are remarkable about this. One of, the, one of the reasons I like this paper so much is because you see this little line here. So this little line just above the 45 degree line corresponds to something called the, the Samuelson-Chatterjee linear solution. So there is an upper bound to how well we can do with incomplete information bargaining. Right? And that, that upper bound is not equal to the efficient frontier because we have an incentive to lie. Right? I have an incentive as a buyer to say it's not worth that much to me. You as a seller are going to say, wow, my costs are really high. And that line is going to eliminate some of the marginal transactions. This upper bound is one way to characterize the Meyerson-Satterthwaite second best, the most efficient outcome. Okay? And what's so neat about this is how closely their outcome and the silent treatment corresponds to that Chatterjee-Samuelson upper bound. We're missing marginal transactions, but getting the inframarginal ones. Okay? So I thought that was really cool, but then of course the result of the paper is that as you introduce communication, it seems like you start getting transactions that are outside the upper bound of what a rational model of bargaining in the spirit of Meyerson-Satterthwaite would predict. So this is what's so cool, that it suggests that communication can actually do better than economists using the most general tools of characterizing equilibria could predict you could accomplish. So this seems like really promising evidence and it also suggests that you know, using the rational toolkit, we, we really can't explain this, or at least using the models of communication that are available to us so far. Okay? There's been lots of, lots of follow-up work. I'm, I'm sort of selectively citing a couple, one that points out that orientation and culture which might not be very apparent in text communication, but more so in face-to-face -face communication can play a role. And then there are some experiments suggesting that the more adversarial the bargaining, you know, you can't actually get negative results on this. Although I'm not totally clear on what, I mean, this seems pretty adversarial to me too. Um, so, you know, the experimental results are positive. The, the, you know, the question for me as an economist then is, you know, if we have sort of vague results in theory or ambivalent results in theory and some positive suggestive evidence and experiments, we'd really like to see this confirmed in the real world. 
Um, and the problem is, of course, that it's very hard to get data on bargaining. So the contribution of this paper that I'm going to focus on today is going to use data from Best Offer, where we can see the messages. We're going to get a natural experiment from the rollout of this messaging platform to think about the effects of introducing messaging on the likelihood of a transaction. And then there's going to be a last piece, and I put C in quotation marks here because it's going to be in sort of a high-dimensional you know, machine learning kind of space. Um, but I'm going to argue that you can actually kind of see convergence to an equilibrium for the, for the cheap talk um, equilibrium that, that we believe is happening in the data. Okay. So what we have set up, let me introduce the platform, which is eBay's best offer. Um, so I, I like to infuriate my European colleagues. Uh, this is, you know, you get a new apartment and you want to go buy a John Michael Biscuit. Um, so you go shopping for your John Michael Biscuit. And um, here it is on eBay. You can get these prints. Or here we have a four and a half thousand, what looks like a doormat, uh, bone sample. And so this is the search results page on eBay. Okay. <laughs> What you see under this price is it says, or best offer. Okay? That signals that the seller is going to be willing to accept offers below $4,500. Thankfully. Um, so here I've clicked on the view item page. So I've gone to the next step in the buyer flow. I could buy it for $4,500. I could add it to my cart. Uh, or, and this is the button that corresponds to the availability of best offer, I can make an offer on the platform. Okay? So I click on that. And this little pop-up appears where I can enter my offer. Um, you'll see, importantly, there's a little extra button I could click to add a message to the seller. Uh, we'll talk more about this soon. And if I send that offer to the seller, they're going to have 48 hours to accept my offer, reject it, or counter. If they counter, I'm going to get a notification, and they will have 48 hours to accept, reject, or counter. And if I counter, and so on and so on. And this looks a lot like Rubenstein alternating sequential offers bargaining. So you can imagine it was a pretty good day when I realized that this was on the site. Um, so that's best offer on the platform. There are a few minor deviations from Rubenstein alternating sequential offers bargaining. One is that sellers cannot initiate this process. They can only post a listing. Buyers only can initiate. The other is that there is a cap, which eBay is experimenting with extending, of six total offers back and forth. They thought of this as a way to discourage buyer harassment of sellers. I'm not really sure that's a salient concern, and so they're thinking about extending them. Yep. This isn't ava available for all products. Yeah, it is. It is, all products. Yep. Okay. I'm, not, I'm not positive. There might be some, like, maybe they make exceptions in the market for, like, idiosyncratic, but in general, this is available for the whole platform. Right, uniformly everywhere. Yep. Oh, then it's not seller-initiated. What do you mean? Yeah, well, if sellers could say, I don't want, I don't want a best offer. This is yeah, 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 that's, that's right. That's right. Yep. Yep. And so I, if I remember the alternating offers framework correctly, I thought the equilibrium was that uh, all trade happens in the first period. Yep. That's uh, right. And so what are the frictions that you what are the frictions that you think lead to alternating offers that we're gonna talk about this in, in just a second. Because okay. one of one of those papers is really just giving you descriptive facts. One of those facts is not surprisingly, we don't immediately transact on the entire platform, which is something that we can't explain with those kinds of models. Uh, and you know, obviously the, the most salient friction is going to be incomplete information. In the Rubenstein setting, you know my value, right? More generally, that's probably not the case on eBay. Matt, I've got another question. Yeah. Sorry. What about multiple buyers? I think I've lost my eBay yeah. once in my life, so I apologize for... No, 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 no. That's a great question. Totally natural question. So it doesn't happen very often, and so I'm basically going to ignore it. 
Uh, the reason I feel okay about that is because if you were a seller and you knew there were going to be lots of buyers arriving, right, then we know from Vula and Compare you should, you should hold an auction. And, and generally they do. And so in the data, it's very rare that you see two buyers negotiating with the same seller at the same time. So in this situation, we think we care about here, we're not expecting to see more. Yeah, so and empirically we don't. Now then, then we should expect them to hold an auction. And empirically, that's true. You rarely ever that's see That's most it. of like what actually happens anyway. Like, yeah. What do you mean? The bus gets there. No, uh, the auction. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, oh, good. Okay. Thank you uh, for the setup. So, okay, here's what happens most on eBay uh, by year. So you might have actually seen this picture before because this picture minus this blue line is the basis of a paper by uh, John and Laurent and um, I think Chiara Farinato uh, wrote a paper that said, look, auctions on the platform are steadily declining from 2004 to 2015, right down all the way to a little bit below 30%. This is a transaction volume, um, whereas fixed price listings are on the ascent. And so the hypothesis of their paper is it must be that we are getting sort of less interested, or it must be that it's just too much of a hassle to do auctions. Now, there are a lot of other things happening in the background here, like the period of biggest change was the introduction of best offer, which changed the composition of what actually gets shown on the search results page. But this blue line is what we're introducing to the picture, and that's the introduction of best offer bargaining. And you know, one of the things that we think is happening is, as people are shifting away from the auction mechanism, they still want some kind of price discovery mechanism. You know, if you're selling that guitar from your attic and you don't know what it's worth, you maybe don't know what price to set it at. If you're not going to hold an auction, right, because those aren't getting as much attention in the search results, the other thing you could do is use fixed, uh, sorry, best offer bargaining and start soliciting offers to learn about demand. So that's my hypothesis for why this is steadily increasing during the period when we are ostensibly switching away from high transactions cost mechanisms, which this is, right? Getting offers is a high transactions cost mechanism. So now it's about 10% of eBay sales. This continues to grow and is of serious interest to the company. Right? So they're thinking hard about the kinds of questions that we're asking today. Okay, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna step, now that I've introduced sort of the platform, I'm gonna uh, do an aside and introduce the other couple papers that we're not gonna talk about in as much depth. Um, one, which uh, I apologize to those of you who have seen this maybe too many times, one is a, is a paper called uh, uh, On the Empirical Content of Cheat Talk Signaling, an Application to Online Bargaining. This was a paper, this was the first one we wrote with the data because the first thing that we saw that was very salient when we looked at the data is that if you look at the, so this is the average offer discount, think about this as the, the average first offer as a fraction of the listing price, okay? And on the x-axis here is the buy it now price which is the listing price, the, the one that you see when you look at the search results page and the view item page. So this was the four and a half thousand dollars, except now it goes up to 600. Um, okay, so here we just did a scatter plot splitting into unit bins to see what those average first offers look like. And in red, I've highlighted the cases where the asking price was a round number. And you see systematically people are getting lower offers um, when they use a round asking price. Okay, and so we weren't the first to observe this. There was a literature uh, that's looked at the use of round numbers in bargaining, right? They saw this result, they've done it experimentally, and concluded, therefore, you should never use round numbers in bargaining, right? And so, you know, being, being economists and, and somewhat wedded, not as much as a long time ago, but a little bit wedded to the rational hypothesis, we said, okay, well, if that's true, if it's a terrible idea to use round numbers in bargaining because there's some weird behavioral misperception of round numbers, then it must be that nobody uses them because nobody would be so stupid as to give up. You know, it turns out to be about 10% 
of your revenues as a seller. It's a serious loss. And this is, remember, like eBay, sellers are pretty serious. They go on the forum, they optimize their search. Like, these are experienced sellers doing this as well. So we looked at that, and what we see is not that sellers are avoiding round numbers, but that they're systematically clumping on them, right? So now, in order to tell that story, we have to also tell a story of why sellers aren't learning how to select proper numbers. Okay, and so I don't know if anybody watched like Chris House. It's like once you have to tell two stories as a diagnostician, then maybe, maybe that's too much. And so we went looking for a more parsimonious answer, and we tried what we thought, and you know I think what people who read this paper at first would, would naturally think is a crazy answer, which is maybe some of that incomplete information theory from the 80s that we teach in first year microeconomics to PhD students now, maybe some of that stuff is right. Maybe there's a signaling equilibrium here, right? And so what would a signaling equilibrium would require? What it, would, what it requires is that these sellers know what they're doing when they use a round number price. That they are consciously setting a round number price and they know they're gonna get lower offers. Now why would they do that? They might do that if there's some compensating differential, right? And what we looked at was the time to sale and the likelihood of sale, and what we found is that these round number listings were much more likely to sell, right? So now we can rationalize this with some heterogeneity, right? Maybe that guitar in Shane's attic, Shane's like happy to let it sit there, he's not in a hurry, so he uses a precise number and gets a better price, and I'm in a hurry, right, so I need to pay my bills, I'm just an assistant professor, and so I need the cash now, and so I use a round number price to close the deal sooner, right? And how do we communicate this to buyers? We communicate it through the use of round numbers. Okay? And so that was the point of this paper. Not, you know, I don't believe that anybody is consciously thinking this when they set their prices. Right? I believe the experimental results that we have heuristics around these round numbers, but those experimental results also suggest that those heuristics are flexible, right? that we're reacting to our experiences around round numbers and precise numbers. Right? And so how do you rationalize that? Well, you might rationalize it by writing down a model of rational expectations beliefs. And that's what this encodes. Right? So I think it's fundamentally consistent with those results around heuristics, around round numbers. But this is, you know, like, part of the reason I, I, I enjoyed writing this paper is I think it's an example of where you can find a sort of complementary use of the experiments and understanding mechanisms, but also overlaying these models to understand how those mechanisms persist in equilibrium and work on the site. And there's a lot more in the paper in thinking about how you document a signaling equilibrium. Um, and, and a little bit of econometric interest if, if you know, we, we designed sort of an ML test around trying to find arbitrary discontinuities, <laughs> which, which then spawned a second paper with a former grad student of mine, Sita Peng, uh, from Cornell, which is, which is online now. You, you think you have this would hold regardless of the price of an item? So if you were selling a house, it's Yeah, we actually looked into the housing data uh, using the same data that uh, Steve Levitt and Chad Severson used. I think it was Chicago area sales. You see a much smaller effect, but if you normalize it, it turns out, you know, here, there's tremendous variation around the mean. In houses, that's not true. So if you normalize it by the, by the coefficient of variation, the effect is exactly proportional to this. Uh, but you do see it in housing. The, the data is much noisier, and it's less convincing, and it didn't make it into the, to the final version of the paper, but we were able to convince ourselves. How about that? <laughs> when I bought my house, I said that we should not have a, a round digit, and my real estate agent looked at me like I was an alien. <laughs> <laughs> when I moved from Cornell to Columbia, my real estate agent said, you got a job for this? We all know this. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know which way it goes. She thought she knew this. Oh, she, uh, she's, my she agent, said this was obvious. My yeah. agent said, oh, you're going to be paying a lot more than this. This is just not going to matter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. It depends on where you live. Um, Okay, uh, so that's the first paper that came out on this. 
And the second paper, which is still a little bit in progress, sequential bargaining in the field. And here uh, we also have Brad Larson from Stanford as a co-author. Um, and this is a more descriptive data, uh, sorry, a more descriptive paper. This is the paper we wrote to try to get more people involved uh, in this literature. And so what we're doing is we're releasing one year of all the best offer transactions we could convince eBay to let us release. It's not selected except on category. Um, and so it's about 100 million bargaining listings. Uh, you can get there through my website or you can go to the MBR, but you can download this without a license. It's free public use. And we're hoping that we can get more people interested in sort of the empirical study, um, you know, field empirical study. Sorry, I say empirical as an economist. I, I separate that from experiments. I know that's, that's weird. but um, So anyway, please use this data. I'll show you some facts from the data that that I think are interesting just looking at pictures. Um, we sort of frame the, the paper as being about thinking about what can we explain with rational models and what can't we. One of the fun things we were able to do is what we're calling an empirical game tree. Where it's, let's just draw, you know, that buyer makes an offer, accept counter decline. And if they counter, accept counter decline and so on. And how often do we get to these different portions of the game tree? Um, you know, on the Rubenstein model, we immediately agree. And yet, you know, 20%, 27% of the time, people continue to bargain. It's just sort of inconsistent with those complete information models in which there's immediate agreement. Um, so anyway, this was sheds a little bit of light, but mostly it was just fun to be able to do this. We've never been able to do this in the study of bargaining um, uh, with empirical data before. Um, here I can show you the histogram of listing prices that show up in the data set. I mean, you probably won't be surprised that it's, it's biased towards cheaper items, but here you see those round numbers showing up where sellers are systematically using them vis-a-vis -vis precise numbers. Um, and then some of the pictures that we generated are just thinking about how things change as you move from cheap stuff to more expensive stuff. The listing price, uh, sorry, the fraction of the listing price that the initial buyer offer comes in at. So listing price on the x-axis, y-axis is the buyer's offer is a fraction of that seems to be slightly declining, although this is a little bit deceptive. This is not a big descent. This is from like 6.15 to 5.54. Um, and the, the bargained price that we end up at has this sort of strange hump shape. And this is actually pretty surprising because if you look at the sale price instead of the final negotiated price, you don't see that hump shape. And so what's going on in the difference between those two pictures? That some people pay $4,500 for the Basquiat, right? They don't bother to bargain. So here is the probability that we bargain at all, conditional on bargaining being available on the listing. And you see for really cheap stuff, a lot of people don't bother. And when they do send an offer for really cheap stuff, it's much more likely to be immediately accepted. Why is this? Because bargaining is costly, right? You know, it's, it's taking time and effort to submit these offers. And so if it's really cheap, you just don't bother. And if it's really cheap and you do make an offer, the seller doesn't bother. I think this is interesting because you know, economists have been writing down models of bargaining, typically in a setting where they, they assume proportional costs of bargaining. right? So this is the Rubenstein ice cream model, that some of it is melting away at a proportional rate. And so those costs then don't induce any differences between small-scale bargaining and large-scale bargaining. But in reality, we do see differences. Yep? Is there any sense in which there's a bargaining breakdown here? Or breakdown here just means both parties walk away? Breakdown means both parties walk away, yeah. That's going to be important for the, especially once I get back to the communication paper. It's going to make my results conservative in a way that I'll that I'll show you. Oh, okay. And yeah. that, was that also part of the tree? And I didn't quite understand yeah, yeah, yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. If, oh, I can't go back. Cool. Um, yep. Here we disagree, and sometimes, right? So so the seller 
has declined your offer, sometimes you're going to come back and make another offer to the seller, about 37% of the time, and about 63% of those 40% of enabled declines, you just walk away. So these are the walk away states. Uh, oh, what is that? Oh, aggregate too as a percentage of total. Uh, I think it ends up being in total about, I want to say about half. So in the, in the oh, I, I forget so for a, this a data set. Oh yeah, yeah, there's lots of, lots of walking. Quite a bit. Yep. Uh, which, I'll show you the summary stats for the, for the communication oh, uh, data which set. Which I guess. I forget off the top of my head for this Oh one. yeah, I guess one could rationalize either side came in thinking uh, more optimistically than was true. And yeah, sure. Yeah. And, and it could be that it's not efficient yeah. for us. Yeah. Right? You might like your guitar no price more than I do. can transact. That's perfectly yep. reasonable. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so one of, the, one of the novel things that we can do with this data set, because we don't only observe bargained outcomes, like most of the data we have on bargaining is just outcomes, right? Like hospital insurer negotiations, we just see outcomes, not the bargaining process. So one of the things we wanted to do in this paper is to actually dig into the process of bargaining. But that's really high dimensional data, these back and forth of offers. So here's the trick we introduced to try to at least tame the data to be able to give you descriptive facts. What we said is, look, we're gonna, for every round of bargaining, we're going to create this parameter called gamma. Okay? Gamma is going to be, take the last two rounds of bargaining, the convex combination of those last two offers. You can always express the next offer as a because it's going to be somewhere in between. So you can always use gamma to characterize an offer at time t as a combination of times t minus 1 and t minus 2. So let me, let me get a little bit more specific. In the first round, we're going to say, what was the asking price? Gamma is the fraction of that that the buyer offers. In the next round, so gamma 2 is going to be the gamma-weighted combination of the initial asking price and then the buyer's first offer, and so on and so forth. So we think about gamma as a kind of, we call it the cave rate. It's like, how much did you give in to my last offer? If gamma is 0, then you just repeated your old offer. If gamma is 1, then you just said, yes, I will go immediately to your offer. Okay. All right, so now that we have those gammas, we can start to generate pictures of this evolution uh, generated by bargaining. And there's two things that we did. One is we just wanted to know, how do these offers evolve over time, right? Sorry, actually, I didn't do this one in terms of the gammas. <laughs> Shoot. Uh, this is just in terms of the, the, uh, the offer amounts. The thing that was interesting here, we're calling this Cosium Dynamics, uh, is that so this is for a bargaining sequence that lasted six turns and ultimately ended in agreement. What you see is that sellers and buyers are getting closer and closer to each other. Now that might seem like perfectly obvious. They agreed, so they must be getting closer and closer. But if you look at those old economics bargaining models, that's not how it works. In an economics bargaining model, right, it's a war of attrition, as in the Crampton model, or it's a screening model. But basically, the second you give me information, you tell me, okay, I'm actually willing to come down in my price, I capitalize on that, right? So the question is, if you make a concession, do I respond with a concession, which is what we see in the data, or do I capitalize on it because I know that you are now the high value type and I can extract a lot of rents from you? The latter is what the economic theory predicts. The former is what we see in the data. And so we call this phenomenon, and I don't think we're the first to coin this, but reciprocal gradualism, right? That buyers and sellers are slowly sort of converging to each other. And this is a phenomenon that's really hard to explain in an economic model. So there's one feature that you can't, can't explain with economics. The other, and now I really am going to use those wait, gammas. Wait, 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 could, yep. Can I pause them? Did they end up at the halfway point between their two opening offers? Yeah, at the end of this, uh, so let's see. So this is the Because that's what intuition seller. says you ought to have gotten. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, then let me, 
you, you set me up great here. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let's let's do those gammas, because this then, is the halfway story. Yeah. And then the then the other question yeah. that comes is: Are all of these always taking place between strangers? Uh, uh, are they always arm's length in the sense that they don't know each other? Yeah, I'm because assuming they, that. Yeah, you're assuming that. But if they're repeated uh, interactions in the sense, yeah. which is possible on this platform. Yep. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I don't remember the fraction of times that it happens. I remember it's rare. I remember I okay. looked at it and decided I wouldn't worry about it, and I should it know this off the top of my head. If yeah, they yeah. were repeated. That's right. That's right. I mean, part of the reason, part of the reason we like this platform so much is that you, you don't. I don't think that that's happening so much. Yeah, yeah, Unlike yeah. you know, if I were looking at like buyer you know supplier contracts uh -huh. where you know yeah, it's repeated, exactly. yeah. right? And we know that the people that negotiate those contracts get their bonuses based on revenue instead of profit, which makes economists upset. But yeah. Um, so what is this? This is a those, remember those gammas? This is a histogram of the gammas for each round of bargaining. So in the top left, this is the buyer's offer as a fraction of the seller's asking price. See, it's kind of most of the mass is off to the right. Next, here is the seller's counter to the buyer's offer, conditional on getting to that point in the game tree. Right? Here's the buyer's counter to that and the seller's counter to that. And so there's a few things that are salient here. One is that it seems like some information is being revealed in the sense that we are making concessions early on and less as we move on in the bargaining process. The mass is, is moving to the left. But two, the really stark thing to us was all this mass on 50%, right? Which is really hard to explain in sort of a theoretical model of bargaining. Yeah, so zero means that they sent back a response. They just repeated their offer. Yeah. And, and is that more effective than not responding? Uh, that's a great question. So wait, this is <laughs> buyer-seller, buyer-seller. So yes, in the sense that um, as a seller, this continues. So I can't, as a seller, reinitiate this bargaining process. I see. So, so if I don't send it, so if I'm not moving from my price, if I don't respond, yeah. I'm killed. They, they can't send me another offer. They can, but you can't send them another offer. So, you know, here you're sort of keeping it alive. That's, that's my guess at this. The other thing that could be happening here is you might be sending a message rationalizing the price, which you couldn't do that's if you just that's declined. That's an interesting empirical test. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, yeah, I, find out whether, I don't know off the top of my head, but we should look. Again, should, does it just always make sense to reiterate yeah. your last yep. offer? Thanks. Yeah, yeah, we haven't done it, but we should. I think that'd be fun. Um, okay, so that was the stark result there, is this sort of settling at 50%. Yep. I'm kind of curious about the scatter plot of gamma 1 versus gamma 2, in that yep. do sellers sort of just have, here's what my second offer or first bargaining offer is going to be, mm -hmm. and I'm just, you know, Maybe, and maybe you have that slide coming. I'm just curious, like, the dynamics, because it seems like there's some yeah. sort of symmetry between those two. You know, it's actually funny, because right now we have an RA generating exactly that. Okay. That's sort of the more, like, you know, the more detailed version of this plot, yeah. right? You want to know, sort of, does the variation in this correlate with the variation in this? Yeah. yeah. That's, that's actually, where we have an RA creating that plot. Okay. okay. So I will, I will email it to you. Okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. Oops. Um, shoot, so I left off the one other slide. Well, I guess the, the, the one other thing that we find around these, these split the difference offers that we thought was kind of interesting uh, is that if you just do a local polynomial fit to the likelihood of success 
for any of these, right? And add a dummy for being at 50%, it seems like these offers are more likely to be accepted, right? Even more likely than an offer that is more advantageous to the other party, right? And this is something that we find very hard to reconcile with here. Yep. Have you got anything to link this to product characteristics? So I might imagine that products that have a higher likelihood of ex post moral hazard have very different uh, bargaining dynamics. Yeah. And so one of the reasons that you might think that wage bargaining or something like that uh, happens relatively rarely or that wages are somewhat rigid is because of the, the incentive effect later on. And I don't know if you could try to link this to like product reviews or transaction-based reviews or something like that to give you a sense of yeah. uh, what the, the change in incentives in terms of the split of the rents would, would do to actual economic outcomes. Yeah. Uh, no, this is a great question. So this is one of the basic limitations of the data set is that um, while for any given product, you could find the product listing and sort of look pretty carefully at what it is, um, eBay doesn't have a very good standardized way uh, to, to look at product identity. So in the data set, one thing we do release is for the cases where they do have a standardized product identity, where they have a product ID, then we can link it to other listings and try to figure out sort of what the average sale price was and we included that in the data set. But in some sense, that's sort of getting away from the interesting set of stuff to study, right? If there's a thick market so that you can control for unobserved heterogeneity, then there's no reason to bargain over it, yeah, yeah. right? And so the extent to which we're interested in this question is the extent to which I kind of can't do very well on thinking about product characteristics. Um, so this is, this is, I think, one of the struggles for, for this data set and for this endeavor. Yeah. Does it think maybe the 50% rule is something to do with so many of the cheap products, right? If people are so low cost for bargaining, it's like, well, if it's only $10, I'll just give them five and see if they take it. Yeah, yeah. It's like a low mental effort to just throw up 50%. This is a good question. So, and, and there's another version of this question, which comes out of a, a, some work by Devin Pope, which is, and we haven't, I haven't done this yet, this is on our list as well, is sort of if, if gamma at 50% is near a round number, is that sort of an attractor? Are we more likely to use it? Um, yeah, I like that. I, that's, that's something we should consider and haven't done. Yep. Okay. Um, that said, that data set is not what we're going to use today. Uh, so that data set was from, that data set is the data set I want you to use and download and, and write papers with. The data set I'm going to use today is from not ebay.com, but ebay.de. So it turns out that in different countries, it is a functionally different website. Okay? Um, and so this is the best offer pop-up. Remember, you did a search, and then you clicked on view item, and then you clicked on make an offer. This is the pop-up on ebay.de. And you'll notice there are a couple things that are different. One is that it's written in gibberish that I can't understand. Um, it's in euros. But two, here I've highlighted where before there was a little plus and then add message to seller. If it's say, you know, yeah. Um, it doesn't have that. Okay? And so we, we discovered this early on in the, in the bargaining um, research agenda. And so we went and asked some product managers, why is it that you don't allow communication on eBay.de? And all we got in response were a bunch of jokes about Germans. Um, they, there was no institutional memory. Uh, from, from our perspective, it appears that this was literally just an accident of the implementation of the eBay site, or maybe the product manager rolling out eBay.de just had different priors about the effectiveness of this feature. But in any case, there was no communication for eBay.de. You could not send a message accompanying the offer. And by the way, in the US, these are 250 character text messages that accompany any given offer. Um, so, of course, true, you know, we true in the rest of Europe, just Germany. Just Germany. Yep. Austria. Yep. 
I, I forget whether there's an eBay. Germany, Germany has a weird history, though, because it was started by these two brothers, one of them yeah. was here at HBS. Sorry. Basically, they literally just copied in this like really huh. um, like crass form of plagiarism that they, and their business model for many other tech companies was this. They copied, they saw eBay taking off in the States, they're like, we gotta do this for Germany, and then they got eBay to buy the German eBay and made like billions of dollars on this and then went on to, so Rocket Internet is the company. They, just, they go around starting tech companies that are literal copies, like to the point of like unambiguous plagiarism of U.S. websites, and then selling them oftentimes to the U.S. Anyhow, eBay Germany. Sorry. We admitted this person. <laughs> <laughs> there are two brothers. This was long before my time. There are two brothers, um, yeah, yeah. both German. One of whom did spend time at Harvard. They still do it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, they do it all over Africa. They, They'll take a U.S. It's, company it's and. It's like a, and yeah. Yeah, eBay Germany does have like yeah. unique. DNA relative to the rest of European eBay. I didn't know this story. This is fantastic. Yeah. But that's like just a fun fact. Yeah. HBS. <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna do some more about this later. This is fantastic. Thank you. They call this some some S A M W E R brothers. I'm gonna ask you about this later. Yeah. We can talk about it later. Yeah. But anyhow, eBay Germany is like weird in a bunch of ways, and I think it might have some legacy employees that are not. Not originally eBay. Yeah. Uh, on that note, I was actually going to ask, to what extent is it is eBay in European countries different? Because I know that, for example, their, their ad placements or the lack of ad placements is definitely yep. different between their U.S. and their European websites. It can be it can be super different, right? Because a lot of their expansion outside of the U.S. was by buying companies, right? And it might look like more like a classified company in, in, in some countries, and more like eBay in other countries, and. Different markets are going to be stronger or weaker, so it's, it can be quite different across countries. I know in France, it's, it's very different from the U.S. model. In the U.K., it's relatively similar. But yeah, there's a lot of heterogeneity there, uh, which is part of why you'll see we didn't use in our design a comparison across uh, European countries. Yep. Um, so we, you know, we found this out, and so we, of course, begged them to run an experiment, right? Because this was half the reason we had this research labs, right, was to, to do some experiments in the firm and um, you know, we said this could be potentially really large gains for the platform, and they said, no, 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 we can't let the Germans talk. Um, and you know, so we persisted in, in trying to convince them that this could be really great. You know, we ran some OLS regressions, we put up some tables, there were even standard errors. And, um, and then one day they decided that this is brilliant and we should immediately implement it. So they went from this is a terrible idea to this brilliant idea with no intermediate range of uncertainty during which they might have run an experiment, right? And I have a separate paper about this, but, um, <laughs> but, but yeah, no, they, they never doubted their conviction and so they just turned it on. Um, so May 23rd, 2016, they just turn on communication in Germany, uh, not doing the you know, category by category experiment that we were really, really hoping for. Uh, what else is happening in Germany at this time? It turns out there's lots of holidays in May. Um, and importantly, there were no other major site changes at the same time. This is important because you know, when, you, when you see eBay papers that are studying site changes, you should be suspicious because they tend to roll them out in batches. This was not, okay? Um, and what works for us is the following. Uh, remember, when you visit a website, you're literally just like downloading the website, right? But when you use an app, you're using software that's installed on your phone, right? And in order to update the platform, they would have to rewrite that software. So they updated the website. They did not update the mobile app in Germany. And that's going to be the basis for our diff and diff. So originally, we thought about making comparisons across European countries. That turned out to be a terrible idea because they're so different. 
But this is a comparison that we're going to get some mileage out of, is mobile versus desktop users before and after. Okay, um, I'll do this now because I'm not going to do it later. You must be curious, what in the world are these people saying? Uh, here I've used Google Translate, so I apologize in advance that some of the messages seem particularly awkward. Um, it's less awkward than it would be if I tried to translate them. They say every, and this is true on the American website as well, people using these messages say everything you can think of. Things that seem perfectly rational, or like what, what an economist would think would be the rational story, like I'm an expert in this, and you know, I've, I've, I've traded this for 10 years, and you're charging a little bit too much, and here's some other listings, to things like, you know, I want to give it to my dying mother, it's what she's always wanted, can you give me half off? Right? You know, things that are obviously not consistent with a rational model. And so, you know, you know since the hard dismissing, it's all, it's all right, rarely less, rarely laughed so much, um, a good review. So, you know, people say a lot of stuff, and there's not an obvious, you know, sort of coherent way to interpret it just by reading uh, these messages. Okay. But for the bulk of, of the paper, until I get to the end, I'm going to ignore the content of these messages and focus on whether one was sent. And I'll come back with a little bit of a machine learning approach to think about the content of these messages at the end. Okay. That was the fun slide, which I can't get away from. Okay, So here on the x-axis, we have time. On the y-axis, we have the fraction of buyer-seller interactions with a message. Now one, one quick aside before I dig into this graph, my unit of observation is gonna be an interaction, which is a buyer item ID pair. Okay, so it's the whole sequence of offers in that buyer item ID pair, but that's gonna be my unit of observation. And I'm gonna be ultimately interested in predicting whether they're successfully gonna transact. Okay. So here is the fraction that include a message. There's two things. One, adoption was instantaneous. And I think it's because in, in Europe, they might be used to using ebay.com, which is a larger marketplace, and so it might have been natural to see this messaging platform. Um, here, I've split the sample by whether the buyer is a desktop user or the seller is a desktop user. I'm only going to see this difference for buyers, not for sellers. Um, and you know the ID. Yep. So, so you, ID, know if a, yes. you know if a buyer moves from desktop to yep. mobile and back. Yep. Okay. Yeah, we don't see that. Um, so we see that a little bit between transactions. Yeah. We don't see this very, sorry, interactions. We don't see this much within, within interactions. So I'm going to do this yeah. at the interaction level. So it's yeah. true that some buyers might be switching back and forth, but across different observations. Okay. Yeah, um, that's, that's pretty key because yeah. if they're frustrated by lack of messaging yeah. on the mobile, you would just think they, yeah, yeah. you know, go to their desktop. Yep. That's right. That's right. Uh, but because they, so why is this positive for mobile buyers? Right? This is sellers sending the buyer a message which the buyer can't see right? because they're on the mobile platform. Okay? So the seller doesn't know whether you're on a desktop or mobile. Right? So they might still get some messages. Um, and it's, it's, by the way, it's not clear to us. You know, we're not certain whether they couldn't see it at the time or not. We're going to treat them as if they couldn't. And you know, econometrically, this turns out to be the way to get conservative estimates. Right? If I do it the other way, just blow up my estimates by a factor of two. I'm happy if you want to do that. Um, but we didn't do that for the paper. Um, okay, so the other thing to notice here is that adoption for desktop buyers on these interactions only goes up to about 6%, right? Um, so it's reasonably rare. This is actually, so this is, you know, the downside of this is that it makes it really hard for me to identify stuff. The upside is that it means I'm not really worried about general equilibrium effects, right? And if this were gonna have as dramatic of an effect as I'm gonna show you it does, if there were higher adoption, then you would rightly 
criticize me for obvious general equilibrium effects that I'm ignoring. Um, but low adoption rates, that's going to be my get out of jail free card for, for general equilibrium. Uh, yep. So in the US, let's say, which has, has had this, what's the percent of messages that people exchange? Yeah, it gets up to about 10% in the US. 10%, so it's higher in the US. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And then just based on the US pictures you showed us before, if we looked only at like the top quartile of transaction of asking prices, we would get a higher number too, yeah. like in Germany as well? Yeah. Yeah, you're more likely to send messages for more expensive so stuff. Like, so then you, okay. So yeah, which is consistent with this being sort of costly technology. Yeah. Okay. Um, here, I'm restricting attention to the case where you have buyer messages only, right? So now we're ignoring those seller messages to buyers who can't read them, or I'm assuming can't read them, um, and you get something pretty close to zero for the case for buyers on mobile. It's not exactly zero, because if you've ever worked with data from a company, right, managing a large database is hard. So you never get those exact zeros, right? Stuff gets misassigned, who knows what's happening, like there's no documentation, the person who created the table, like quit the company a long time ago because it's a deck world. Uh, so, yeah. What's the volume of transactions again here that you're looking at? How, how um, many are we talking about? Uh, so, that's a great question. Let me get to my summary stats. It's slipping my, I think uh, it's about 3.4 million is the set that I'm going to use totally. for four weeks before, four weeks after the change. Great. Uh, okay. So 3.3 million uh, interactions. So I've split this, I've done this table you know, a little bit sort of strangely I've, by listings, by sellers, by buyers, and by interactions. So by listings, um, we have a bunch in our data set, average asking price is about $100, um, and about 56% of those listings are going to sell. Okay. Uh, at the seller level and the buyer level, the only thing I want you to know is that there's a long tail of very active buyers and very active sellers, but on average, those buyers are much less active. So you have a lot of like pseudo-professional sellers. The modal buyer shows up once and then leaves the site. Okay? So I'm going to think about sellers as long-run players, buyers as short-run players. That'll matter later. Not yet. And then here's the interaction level data. right? Different from the listing, because the listing might have multiple interactions. They get about a little bit less than two offers in their lifetime, 44% of the time it's successful, and about half the time the buyer is on the desktop. Okay? And mechanically, half my sample is going to be after the period because I'm doing four weeks before and four weeks after. Okay, I have a bunch of covariates that I will throw in, sometimes on time trends, sometimes I'll take it out, you'll see why. The asking price category by condition fixed effects, because I think used means different things in different categories. Day week fixed effects. There was some anecdotal evidence that in the UK it really matters whether it's rainy or not for activity on the site. So I threw in weather in Frankfurt. Doesn't really matter. Um, and then there's a ton of holidays in Germany in May. So I'll throw in fixed effects because obviously, you know, four weeks after is going to make. Okay, sorry, four weeks. So first let me show you my, my identification strategy. See, I'm doing it. Perfect. Um, so there's, there's two ways to think about identification here. What I could do. Right. If I were a product manager at eBay, what I would do is a pre-post estimator with no standard errors. Right. Uh, just take the mean before and the mean after. Um, and what we're going to do based on that desktop mobile strategy is we're going to do a diff and diff, right? comparing pre-post and mobile and desktop using the mobile group who never got the opportunity to send messages or couldn't see messages as a control group to deal with secular trends. Okay. Cool. So let me just show you this in pictures to start off. Um, this is the pre-post for the desktop users. Okay? Here I've excluded the time trend, 
And I'll tell you why in a second. But so on the x-axis is time. On the y-axis is the fraction of interactions that successfully ended in a transaction. You see, it's really noisy, right? And there's this tiny, like half a percentage point bump. That shouldn't be surprising that it's small, right? Because there's only a six percent adoption, and this is site-wide success. Um, when I add my covariates in, excluding the time trend, it gets a lot less noisy, and we don't kill the bump. Why have I excluded the time trend? If I included it here, I'll show you in a second the regression results. If I included it here, notice in the post period, there's this trend. So it turns out if I include the time trend, I'm going to kill my result. Okay? So here, and this is part of why the diff and diff is going to be important for believing the results. Um, Oh, sorry, before I do that, let me just show you mobile, right? Mobile pre, no difference. Sorry, uh, mobile raw data, no difference. Mobile with controls, no difference, okay? So this is what I'm gonna get out of the mobile sample is a little bit of credibility for how I'm treating this trend in the post period. That's really what I'm looking for, okay? So let me show you the table of results. Uh, before I do that, there's just a quick aside on, on sort of issues of power. Um, so it, it sounds like, you know, when I say I have like 3.4 million or 3.3 million observations, it sounds like a big data exercise, which is what you might expect from somebody who has internal access to eBay data. This is not really a big data exercise, right? So we have 6% adoption. So the effects on the whole sample are going to be much, 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 much smaller. And you can do this as like a power calculation, the same way you would if you were designing medical, you know, medical uh, experiments, right? So we'll say there's a binomial with a success rate equal to the sample average. Um, the effect is about half a percentage point, okay? Say we want a type 1 error rate of 0.05, and say we, and here I'm just picking something arbitrary, we want a 50% power, then what you need is 3.41 million experiments. I have about 3.3 million observations. In other words, this is not big data. This is like on the edge of maybe being able to detect something. I'm putting this up because at some point pretty soon you're, you're reasonably going to start asking me, did you cut the data this way or that way? And I'm telling you that if I start cutting the data extensively, I'm not going to see anything. Right? My standard errors are going to get big, I'm going to have a multiple comparison problem, and it's going it's to look like a lot of garbage. So I'm just, this is a defensive point. Okay. But isn't that also an argument for uh, diff and diffing uh, with as many different kinds of diffs as you can yeah, it, it, I mean you 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 ruled out using other countries as your diff. Yeah, it's really uh, bad. Uh, yeah, except <laughs> immediately I that, you yep. know, my response is well then go to Austria, go to France, go to the U.S., go to anywhere else because your time trend potentially might be identified uh, by seeing the same trend in some other country or something. Right, yeah. right, but the, it's hard. isn't that uh, the other reaction to have to, to this slide you just put up? Which yeah, I mean, we did look at other countries, and it's a really bad comparison. So I could show you that there's not, you know, we could go back and just show you that there's not this trend in other countries. Yeah. That, that would be convincing. That, yeah, that. for example. That's easy. Yeah. Uh, just because it's so small. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, that's a reasonable question. We could just do that as a separate set of plots. Yeah. There's yeah. eight other countries in Europe. We don't see this, this uptick during this period. I think that would be useful. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot, actually. Let me write that down. Um, okay. Um, okay. One other thing um, that you know some people are familiar with, some not. Uh, so when I do the diff and diff, what I'm going to get 
because you know not everybody uses the feature, right? All I'm getting is like an intent to treat estimate, right? It's like I, I gave you the pills, you didn't necessarily take them. You know, I'm giving you the option to send messages, but you didn't necessarily use it. So this is what we call an intent to treat estimate. Um, so that's what I'm estimating with the diff and diff. What you might want to do is ask, well, if only 6% of people adopted, how should we blow that up to think about the treatment effect on the treated? And the way you do that is you run an IV, where you use a dummy for being in the post set who did send a message uh, as an instrument. The reason I'm, I'm highlighting this is because when I show you IV results, it's not introducing, typically when we say we're using an IV, it's like we've introduced some new source of variation. It's not. It's the same source of variation. All it's doing is rescaling the estimate. Okay. Um, so this is the table of results that corresponds to what I showed you graphically. So first, let's start with the pre-post estimates, just for desktop users. If I don't use controls, right, that checkbox is empty, then I get about a half a percentage point effect. If I introduce controls with that time trend, it dies, right? And that's that upward trend in the post period, okay? So now what I want to do is I want to say, well, let's use mobile to pull out that time trend, right? Because you saw in those pictures, mobile's flat. So if I introduce mobile now, the pre-post for just mobile, I get a zero. This is the flatness of that mobile curve, right? And then when I do diff and diff, now it's the interaction of post and desktop that I'm interested in for my estimate. It survives without controls, and now, instead of losing it with the inclusion of a time trend as we did before, we keep it, and that's because mobile is identifying the time trend. So what is it doing then? It's sort of saying, well, there must be some increasing treatment effect in the post period. Okay? I'll show you that soon. Then when I reformulate this as an IV, to say not what is the effect, the intent to treat for the marketplace at large, but instead for that 6% of people that were actually sending messages, what was the effect for them? I get this 0.0744. So let's think about magnitudes. This is about a half a percentage point for the intent to treat for the marketplace at large. This is a seven percentage point effect for the people who actually send messages, right? So the baseline was about 44%. So this is like a 14% increase in the likelihood that we transact. And coming back to an earlier question, right, do we want these people to transact? Maybe not. Right? Maybe Shane likes his guitar more than I do. Yeah, right. So some fraction of those failures are not failures at all, right, but an efficient outcome. And viewed that way, this is actually a conservative estimate for how significant the effects on the bargaining marketplace are. Okay? So these effects, I, to me, are astronomical. Now, you know, when we interpret a in, uh, treatment effect on the treated, it might be that the people who get the most out of sending messages are the ones who send them, as you would expect in a rational model. So this is going to be an overstatement, most likely. Still pretty big, I think. Okay. And by the way, we're working with, with eBay right now to try to get them to roll out an individual. And remember, there was that extra box, add a message to a seller, right? This is a perfect setting for an experiment to nudge people by removing that extra click. And we're working on that experiment to then get at some of the heterogeneity in these effects. Uh, and hopefully one day they'll want it. I've been trying for years. Is, is there a lot of seller level variation in the adoption of the, like, some people yeah. probably really chatty Cathy, right? Yeah, yeah, some people are chatty Cathy, some people send standardized messages. Yeah, there's a lot of seller heterogeneity in this. Yeah. And so do people pick this up over time? Um, no, the adoption rate is pretty flat. Do people realize it's working? That I don't know. <laughs> that's that's harder. Uh, the adoption rate was like pretty flat, so we don't see. I mean, maybe you saw. Let me see if I can. I thought you said you saw you saw a trend over time of increasing increasing um, ah. 
raids, right? So maybe you see a slight trend here, right? That's pretty small. But you could probably foresee what I'm going to show you yeah. soon, which is right. the treatment effect right. is definitely increasing. But it's right. not that they're using it this much more, right? That was relatively flat. It's that for some reason it seems to be having a larger effect on the marketplace. They get used to, they, they get more comfortable using it or something. Yeah, yeah. Like that. so that's right. So if you were incredibly generous, you would say, Matt, your identification strategy is fine. This must be an increasing treatment effect, right? And then we would cook up a story like maybe they're learning how to use messages or sending different words, right? That's the generous interpretation. The less generous interpretation is, hey, Matt, you're identifying off 6% compliance. So it doesn't take a lot of misspecification for you to get an effect and a statistically significant one, which is why it's going to be important then for me to put some meat on the bones of this convergence story. Uh, yeah. Uh, okay, so I showed you that. So now let me do a little bit of robustness and then we'll dig into that, um, that convergence story. So uh, this is actually what I, was, what I was gonna go in the direction of what I was just telling you. So the next thing that I wanna do is think about um, weak specific effects, <laughs> right? So this is coming out of a, a paper by Dave Altor. The idea is we're gonna interact uh, the dummy for treatment with weak specific fixed effects. And we do this for two reasons. Um, one, because this allows you, if you use a, do, take all the weeks before the treatment and do an F-test on those, right? And what is that testing? That's saying, are those, are those effects always zero, right? And that's important because if you get a causal effect before the treatment, then like time and space have failed us in some way that we haven't like don't fully understand, right? Or, or you're really misspecified, right? So people think about this as a check of sort of the assumptions that underlie this diff and diff identification strategy. So I'm going to do that. But two, having these weak specific fixed effects is going to let me capture then that, that time trend. So here's what I get. By the way, you should, this is exactly what you should have been expecting, right, from that scatter plot, right? So you saw the increasing trend in the post period. So here's the pre-period. I get zeros, thankfully, right? I wouldn't be giving this talk if I hadn't gotten zeros here because then you would know that I messed up the, the identification. Everything. Right, is set to zero for the week before the treatment. And then in the period after the treatment, we see this increasing trend in the treatment effect. Yeah. Why do you expect an increasing trend? Why isn't there a sudden jump? Is that because there is no learning story in your stuff? Well, yeah, so I, I didn't, I mean, I didn't know what to expect. This is the data speaking. Uh, you're right that I, you know, I think approaching this, I expected a sudden jump, uh, especially after I saw that immediate adoption, Yeah. right? You know, if this has an effect on communication, the simplest model, you treat me, I should, I should be treated, right? Um, and so when we see this, now we have to go fishing for stories again, right? Um, you could build a learning story from this. You could build a learning story. I guess you could. Bro. Yeah. I mean, especially if you've got sellers who are selling all the time and buyers who are, like, making the same behavioral mistakes all the time. Yep. Right? Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to make lemonade out of this, right? So, like, what are, what are economists really, you know, famously bad at? We, we give you equilibrium, but we don't tell you how people get there, right? We don't talk about convergence to equilibrium. Um, and I'm not gonna tell you how they get there, but what I am gonna argue is that this is a story about convergence, right? This is that, you know what, you gave people a cheap toxic, and like, let's think about the complexity of this equilibrium, right? Because it's a general message based. You could type anything into that box. You could type, like, you know, the elephant is sitting down. It's like, what does that mean, right? So like the message, you know, and the meaning is, is a feature of the equilibrium. 
And so you might imagine that this is actually sort of a hard space to, to learn or to find an equilibrium in. But, but in your earlier chart, the buyers yeah. already come only once or twice at best. Ah, so good, good, good. Buyers, right? Yep, that's true. That's going to be important. That's going to be really important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that is exactly right. But I yep. think the only learning that could, only, the learning that could happen is the seller learning how to respond. Yeah, you shouldn't have written this paper. Right? People yeah. all know the this. Right? Yeah, the first day is like, I was responding offended because my guitar is worth a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but then I learned how to communicate with people in a way that I actually end up with the sale. I don't know. That would be you a compelling story if somebody told it. I have a slightly different reaction, which is <laughs> it's, it's point oh one which is much higher than your estimate, which was taking the average of those four effects, which mm -hmm. suggests then that your prior estimate is, uh, if yeah. the trend continues, your prior estimate's a gross underestimate of the net benefit. And I would have been very curious to have gone out many weeks. Yeah, okay, exactly. Good idea. Yeah. Aha. Aha. Yep. So what do we see the effect? Even like jumps up a little bit higher yeah, than yeah, we expect for a couple weeks and then stabilizes. And then stabilizes. Right about at that point of time. Now that by the way, you know, because this was my estimating sample, so it really is a little bit of an accident, right? That the mean over this was equal to the long run mean. Uh -huh. It's reassuring for, you know, if you wanted to extrapolate from my estimates that this really does seem to stick as the long run mean, but you're right that it was kind of an accident, right? Because we had these two higher ones. Yeah. So I would think that there are other bits of data that could help to inform the story. One is like what happens to the variance in transaction prices, or do you see people accept offers that look like offers that probably wouldn't have been accepted before the message? Yeah. Meaning like seller A now determines that once they see a message, they actually accept something that you didn't see them accepting for a similar yeah. item before. I'm a little bit nervous about the variance just because getting it second moments is really gonna push me sort of on power. And in the second case, it must be it must be mechanically true, right? Because the average acceptance rate is increasing. And you know, the question is sort of where is this heterogeneity? Um, yeah, which is something we're gonna we're gonna whether do. Whether the support of prices yeah. or the support of yeah. accepted prices changes or if it's yeah. uh, changes in what's accepted within the support. So the way the way that I'm gonna think about getting that is is gonna be you know, by cutting the data and asking, do we see the changes in the low price bins or do we see the changes in the high price bins? Um, is that getting your intuition or something different? I didn't actually know what to expect, but yeah. I, I okay. love it. <laughs> so, so I'm going to do this by cuts of the data. If we can find a, a more clever way to do it, I would really like to, because you know, as I said, when I start cutting the data to get it at these heterogeneous effects, then I'm going to lose power, and you're going to see it. It turns out pretty bad. Uh, but let's let's get there. So okay. So this is so again the, the generous story here is that this is convergence to an equilibrium. But again, it would be totally reasonable for you to say your compliance rate is really low, right? So that's that's too much. Like probably this is just some misspecification that's blown up by the low compliance rate. Okay. Um, so what can I do to convince you? One thing I can do is I can throw in seller fixed effects because eBay data is great and I have individual IDs and I throw in seller fixed effects and everything survives. So that's, that's some good news. Um, the other thing I can do is look at compositional changes. So this is a, a second answer to the... It's like yeah. seller experience though, right? Like it's like a time varying seller yeah. thing. Not, cause like the, yeah. I think what this side of the table was saying was 
about seller learning. Yeah, I'm going to get there. I'm going to get there. Although yeah. your question is still going to be the right question to ask when I do get okay. there. Okay, okay. But we'll, we'll revisit yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But are you uh, wanting yeah. like sellers specific and time varying? Yep, that will yeah. be the right question. Yeah. Which we don't do yet, but should. Um, this is this is something much simpler, which is just asking, take the observables, right, and ask like, you know, is the predicted probability of success for the things that we're bargaining over changing? Or another way of asking this is sort of, you know, is the set of stuff that we're negotiating over changing? And we don't see any significant effects. This would have been more of a general equilibrium concern. Okay? Uh, so the compositional changes don't seem large here, uh, and none of it is statistically significant. Um, we tried playing with the sample window a little bit, and you could probably, so here in the bottom, now this is all, these are all individual regressions. In the bottom are the IV estimates. You could probably have predicted this based on just the time path of those week specific effects, right? It's small in the beginning, it gets largest when you include those, those high weeks, and then it sort of stabilizes a little bit lower. Um, okay, so now, you know, we, we started um, to get at this question of mechanisms a little bit, cutting the data, uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical of, of this portion of the paper because we're reducing power, we're introducing a multiple comparison problem, right? We're just searching for effects now. Uh, so we did it two ways, by price buckets and by major categories. Uh, yeah, I, I use strong language, uh, <laughs> we cut garbage. Um, so let me at least show you the, the unsuccessful results. Um, so this is by price spins, so 0 to 50, 50 to 150, and we're literally just cutting the sample and rerunning those regressions. These are the IV regressions. Um, and one thing that was a little bit surprising, but I hesitate to put too much on it, is it seems like the largest effects are for cheap stuff, mm -hmm. right? But remember, you know, I, I already told you that we send messages most and more expensive stuff. So this was a little bit surprising, but I'm not, I'm not totally sure how to interpret it, right? It might just be that there's more surplus at stake here, and so it still might be higher returns to send messages for expensive stuff. Yep. I would like to ask, do the sellers change their asking price behavior now they know they can... Yeah, yeah, this is the general equilibrium story, and it would, if they did, it would show up uh, in this compositional picture. Uh, so I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, but that's my best answer to that. I don't know. Uh, one thing I could do, which we haven't done, is we could try to isolate the sellers who have some experience with messaging and see whether that compositional picture holds up for them. And that might push it a little bit further in the spirit of your last question. Yeah. Yeah. Is the probability of breakdown higher or lower as you get to the more expensive items? Uh, much higher. Much higher. Yeah. Yeah, the probability we transact is pretty high for cheap stuff and pretty, pretty low so for expensive stuff. So expected value yeah. uh, would generate possibly more messaging even if it's... Yep. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's successful. That's, that's why I hesitate. Even though these magnitudes yeah, yeah, are right. smaller, I was just yeah. following your line. I was a step behind you. Okay, oh. gotcha. Um, yeah, maybe if we did it in like log percent or something, it would. But yeah, I'm not sure what exactly yeah. the right one is. So we just put up the raw. Um, then we did it by category. So these are categories for which we have at least 100,000 ob uh, observations. Um, we got results all over the map. These are not corrected for the multiple comparison problem. These standard errors. So you shouldn't take them too seriously. Uh, we tried to read the tea leaves for a little bit, but I have no idea why, you know, for instance, PC and video games, we see a negative effect. Uh, why for mobile phones, we see a strong positive effect. This was, you know, this was a, a bit of a dud for us. We were hoping to see, per your question earlier, right, like maybe in the, you know, massive incomplete information categories we see more, and I'm, I'm just not, not seeing it. The other thing to remember, by the way, is like whatever your sort of representative idea of an item for these categories is, it's going to be weirdly selected when you think about best offer, 
right? Like in, um, where's, where are my DVDs gonna be? Like TV, video, and audio, it's not that we're trading DVDs because you're less likely to use best offer for that, but maybe like a Led Zeppelin collector set. Right. So that selection is gonna sort of distort what actually gets put in here. It makes it really hard to interpret category fixed effects in general for selected eBay stuff. Okay, I don't like the slides, so I'm gonna skip. Um, one other thing we did is we looked at other outcomes, right? We've been putting the probability of a transaction or the, the dummy for the transaction on the left-hand side. Let's look at the number of offers, agreed price, and so on. Um, we don't see any significant effects. I'm going to focus on this bottom row. That's the intent, sorry, the treatment effect on the treated estimates. Here I'm giving you the, the uh, uh, intent to treat estimates in the first two rows. We don't see any significant effects on the number of offers or even the first offer. We do see a significant effect Again, maybe there's a multiple comparison problem here. We're sort of throwing stuff at the wall, but we do see a negative effect on the agreed price. And so we decided to break that open a little bit by splitting the sample even more, conditioning on agreement for whether the buyer's first offer was agreed to, or a different sample where the seller's counter was agreed to, and a different sample where the buyer's counter to the seller's counter was agreed to. So in other words, at what point in the negotiation did we conclude? And what we get are these alternating signs no, which they're not significant, that's right. The alternating signs suggest to me that you know, basically this is a story that whoever's sending the message is using it to their advantage, right? The buyer offer is accepted, then they got a cheaper price. The seller's counter is accepted, then they got a higher price. Mm -hmm. So messages are being used to push the price around, which is why then maybe we get a negative effect here, right? Because buyers always make the first offer and those are often accepted. So it's just compositional, a mechanical feature of the platform. Okay, so now with my remaining time, let me just see how much I have, perfect. I'm gonna talk a little bit about those messages. Uh, so in the post period, we have four weeks. I have about 10 minutes? Yeah, yeah perfect. We have four weeks of messages that are sent on eBay.de. That's about 250,000 messages. Um, so we're gonna, you know, we start with cleaning. And, and by the way, on eBay.de, it's not, it's not like the US where there's an expectation you're gonna use English. Only about 80% of the messages are in German. So we had to do some language detection before we could even start destemming words. Um, so removal of numbers and symbols and stop words, and then lemmatizing just means you're chopping off sort of the tense stuff uh, and all the variant, like all the letters that just make up variants of a word, okay? I want to emphasize this is totally descriptive. I have no experimental variation here. I can't tell you any causal effects. Um, the neat thing is that I'm going to be able to match this convergence to equilibrium. So several points I've been saying. This is a generous interpretation of my findings. What I want to do is show you something else in the data that lends credence to this interpretation to try to convince you that it's not just misspecification driving identification off of a tiny, tiny compliance. Okay, here's some summary of that, of that data. Um, we throw a little bit of stuff at the wall here. We try to compute the sentiment. So there, you know, in text analysis, there's this stuff called sentiment analysis where you just ask like how nice are the words that people are using. And it, it's literally, there'll be a dictionary with number scores Right, like, you know, thanks is gonna get a positive score, jerk is gonna get a negative score, and then you just add up the score across all the words. It seems like buyers are a little bit nicer than sellers. This might be mechanical though, right, because sellers are responding to an offer. Um, uh, German makes up about 84% of the sample. Uh, among buyers, right, among sellers, you see a little bit more use of English. Other languages is pretty similar. Um, here I can show you the most frequent stems that show up. Uh, hello, a lot, a little bit of talk of shipping. By the way, this is, you know, this question of whether people negotiate over shipping with the messages, technically they're not supposed to in the instructions for best offer. 
clearly they are at least talking about it, if not negotiating on shipping. Um, you know, a little bit more nice stuff on the buyer side. By the way, MFG is, uh, you might have to help me, Mit Grusen? Yes. Like, it's a sign up. Yep. It means like, it's, you'd be like, cheers, like at the end of an email. Yeah. It's like a casual. This baffled us for so long. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Um, so anyway, buyers are saying a lot of nice stuff. Sellers are talking, you know, still some hesitant language. Unfortunately, that might be the sentiment difference. Um, uh, what did you do with the, is that, Yeah. so some of those words mean different things in German and English, yeah. so the word like also, yeah. in this is, German that, that word literally means therefore, yeah. so, so what, if, what have I done, I, I, so we, we de-stemmed in German, and then to make that table I put it through Google Translate, so hopefully it picked up on that, okay. I yeah. See. I see. yeah, everything here I've, I've just smashed through Google Translate because I, yeah. Okay, uh, so, so now, we, yeah. Doing all in English or all in German? Which one is the analysis? Everything's, the analysis is done in German. Okay. Yeah, and then, right, which made things a little bit harder because there's not like, you know, as many sentiment analysis dictionaries and, yeah. and more tools <laughs> in English. Um, and also, I have no idea. In some ways, it's better to not know <laughs> <laughs> what your code is doing. Uh, so, <laughs> um, so what do I want to do with this? Here's, okay, here's the payoff to doing this text analysis stuff. Do so you remember the story about convergence to an equilibrium? The question is, can we see it in the messages people are sending? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a bag of words approach. And, and by the way, this is a learning experience for me in natural language processing. It was shocking to me sort of how primitive the state of the art in natural language processing is. Bag of words is like state of the art probably until what, 2013, 2014, when we saw word to back and then later doc to back. But this is like real NLP stuff, which blew my mind. What is, okay, so we're going to do this separately for buyers and sellers, and um, what I'm going to do is take all of the messages that were sent by a buyer in week one and squish them all together in one document. Week two, squish them all together in one document. So now I have a big long document for buyers for weeks one through ten and for sellers through weeks, for weeks one through ten. And then I'm going to do bag of words, and let me just see if I can, I'm going to try to click on something just to explain what bag of words is. All it is, literally bag of words, is just converting a document into a vector, right, where each element of the vector is a counting measure over the support of words that are ever used in the join of any of these documents. So a practical example, here's document one, thanks for your offer. We lemmatize, we get rid of stop words, and that becomes thanks offer, or thank offer probably, I should have fixed that on the slide, right? And so what is that? I'm going to say element one of the vector is thanks, element two is offer, and element three is going to come from some other document, so you get one, one, zero. And if I'd said thanks, thanks for your offer, it would be two, one, zero. Okay? Document two, this is my final offer. Now we have this word final, which didn't show up here. That's going to be in the third position. Offer was in the second position, right? And so it's zero, one, one. So we're converting these documents, and you can do this for arbitrarily long documents, right, into vectors. And once we're in vector space, now we have all kinds of similarity measures, right? That's why we're doing this. That's why bag of words was useful. Okay. Cool. So now I have 20 vectors. 10 vectors for buyers, 10 vectors for sellers. And what I'm going to do is take the cosine distance. This is a measure of the angle between two different vectors, right? Uh, in order to think about how similar are the sets of words that we're using. I wanted just a distance metric. We could have used lots of different distance, me distance metrics. Here's what I used, okay? And the idea is that if we are converging to an equilibrium, and that distance between, say, week one and two, 
and week one and three, that should be larger than when we've converged, right? Weeks five and six or seven and eight should be much more similar in cosine distance than they are to the weeks where we were still converging. Does that make sense? All right. So here are the pictures. I would have, it's funny, I would have tested something differently. Huh. I would have tested a, a, a reduction in the variance of the words that get used over time as transactions get more standardized. So it's... What does variance of the words mean? Well, I mean, I'm taking it actually from the patent literature, which uses, hmm. does something very similar to, yeah. to look at the uniqueness of words and patents as a way of measuring how novel the patent is. Uh, and so when you depart from commonly used words, yeah. you're more novel. Whereas here, the point is <laughs> the transactions are becoming more regularized mm -hmm. if it's a learning story and they're getting used yeah. to going back and forth. So the sellers, who I guess are the ones learning here, are paying attention to what words work. And so they'll all end up converging on a smaller set yep. of phrases. I like this idea because I, I think I can do it, and I'm pretty positive you, it's going to be consistent. You, you get the idea. Yep, yep, yep. yep. This, is a, this is a fun idea. I, I, I hadn't thought of it, and we should do this. I totally agree. Um, OK, so if the story is right, so what, what are these? These are heat maps of that cosine distance. Sorry, Python likes to do 0 is 1. and but. Um, so just shift everything up. Zero should be one, two should be three, so on. Um, so what is this? This is the cosine distance between any pair of weeks. Right? So on the diagonal here, a thing compared to itself is identical. And so the darker the color, the more similar it is. So that's why it's perfectly black along the diagonal here. Mm -hmm. right? And then here we see the greatest distance between the vectors. And what is this? This is the difference between week one and week 10. Okay? So what should we expect if there's convergence to an equilibrium? On the far off diagonals, we should expect to see more distance. And then if we fully converge, we should expect to see a block that is relatively more similar, which is symbolized in the heat map by a darker color. So here I've just replicated that treatment effects picture. right? So you can see that this roughly matches that convergence and the similarity of sets of words. Now, what's really cool to me, coming back to the question earlier, right, is, well, buyers are one-time players. So they can't be learning anything. And what do we get when we do this for buyers? noise. Right? It's the long run players who seem to be learning something uh, about what should be said or what words mean in equilibrium. And then of course the next reasonable question is, could we do this within buyer? And we just have it done. Yeah. Or you'd almost you care almost a little bit too about the, which round of the communication it is too. Oh. Mm -hmm. Like is it like uh, like you would think that the seller would learn how to respond to the first because like if the buyer's always on average going to send the same first message which is like I really want this guitar for my kid can you come down in price the seller like they should have let they, they should learn how to respond best to that over time like it's yeah. like the the first response from the seller or something like you know what I mean I, mean, I think it's, it's going to be a little bit out of order right because the buyers are just sending all sorts of crazy stuff like buyers are one-time players so they're not sending yeah really but, so like, but like whatever that response is yeah. the seller should like to me it seems like the sellers I don't know like, yeah. so, but, something about like which of the seller messages yeah I mean your, your intuition that sellers are sort of standardizing is right because when you look at the data, right, there are a bunch of messages that show up over and over. And it's because the seller has decided this is my message. Yeah. And they copy paste it. Right? And like half of it is advertisement, half of it is message. Um, yeah, actually, the most populous message was there was an API uh, that allowed sellers to upload. And like if you're thinking about designing an API, right, it'd be really useful if there were like a, you know, a little like you know, grayed out text, like add your message here. 
Problem is this API didn't add it as grayed out text. It pre-filled it as add your message here <laughs> in German. And so that was like the most commonly sent message was add your message here. Uh, I cut those out of the sample, by the way, for the whole analysis. But um, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, sorry, I'm out of time. Okay, so anyway, uh, let's do that. So I never really worked out exactly what's changing. I've tried, I've looked, sentiment analysis, are they getting nicer, are they using particular words more, I just haven't figured it out. And so right now, this still sits in this relatively high dimensional sort of hard to make sense of space. So uh, this communication facilitates successful bargaining, and our results, absolutely. And it looks like something where we can see that story of convergence. There's a lot of questions left open. What are they saying that affects outcomes? I can tell you what I can't prove yet, which is um, I'm pretty sure that the effective messages are, to my dismay as an economist, not the rational, I'm doing this for a long time and I have a lot of information. I think it's the, the nice, nice person stuff. Thanks for considering my offer. Have a nice day. That seems to be where the biggest effects are. I haven't written the table to prove that yet, but that's my intuition on where this paper is going. But, you know, what is the mechanism by which this works? Understanding that. What's the optimal communication protocol? That's what eBay wants. Um, and in general, coming back to this bigger picture agenda on bargaining, um, finding new sources of data so we can tackle these questions. All right, thank you very much. Oh, thank you.